Helen and I were on holiday a couple of weeks ago. and We went back to our adopted home in Derbyshire and I had a wonderful week. Thank you to so many of those who said, did you have a nice holiday? Forgive me when I replied with the truth, yes, I did the back garden and decorated a bedroom. But it was while we were on holiday in Derbyshire that I was drawn to a bold headline in the local free paper, the Peak Advertiser. Lost. Ben. Reward offered. Now, having a son called Ben, my immediate thought was, I thought I knew where he was. But this Ben was a black, long-coated Labrador. And a reward was offered for his safe return. And the advert in the Peak Advertiser was in the personal announcements section under the heading Lost and Found. To lose anything uh, is a bother. Sometimes it's even a trauma. Our car or house key goes missing. And I don't know about your family, it's confession time in the manse. But we're in a foul mood until we actually find it. And if we lose too many things, we think we're cracking up. We say to ourselves, it's about four things I've lost this week. What on earth is happening to me? And we're certain we're cracking up when we finally find the milk in the cleaning cupboard. Don't laugh, it happened last week. We become upset when some things are lost, like an engagement ring or a bracelet, something of sentimental value. And so relieved and so rejoicing when sometimes they're found. Like the lady in Canada who found her ring in the back garden round the carrot the other week. The whole of Luke 15 is, as Kina mentioned for us earlier in the service, a passage or passages about lost things. Lost animals, lost possessions, and finally lost people. And if Ben had been a little boy rather than a Labrador, it would have been much more seriously dealt with. Lost people rightly generate enormous concern whether they're little boys or girls still unaccounted for in the Grenfell Tower disaster or the Mexican earthquake or the rigors of Hurricane Irma. We fear for the safety of lost people. We rejoice if they're found safe and well, and we weep when there's a horrible rather than a happy outcome. Lost people are important. So today, we look at one of the most famous and well-read stories in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son, or the lost sons, or the forgiving father, all of which are accurate descriptions of this parable of Jesus Christ. Now, please don't groan. If you've already done it, it's too late. I know that some of us have heard this story dozens of times. Though remember, others of it, of us, might never have heard it before. Uh, when our children were young, and I resonated exactly with what Keen was saying, when our children were young, we used to read to them at night before they went to bed and often two boys, one on each knee, would sit there with picture books with vivid stories and we gave them turns to choose what book. 
We had dozens of books. But when we asked what they wanted to hear, they'd rummage around until they found that book. Spot the Dog, which became The Hungry Caterpillar, which became Burglar Bill. This one, they'd say, and we groan. you've, You've had that hundreds of times. Don't you want another one? This one, they'd say. And this one, this parable, is like that for many disciples of Jesus. It's a, it's a salt story. It flavors life. And no matter how many times you've heard it, it threatens, it promises to bring flavor and importance. Uh, There are several short points today. They all begin with R. I know I don't normally work into letters and resonances, but uh, it fits this morning. The first R about the story is rebellion. For this story is about the rebellion of a son. He wasn't the first child to rebel and he won't be the last. Was he rebelling against his middle-class upbringing? It's clearly a wealthy family. Was he rebelling against the discipline of his parents, which as he got older he considered to be just altogether too strict or restricting? We don't know. We do know that according to Jewish law, as the second of two sons, he was entitled to one-third of his father's estate. However, the apportioning of the inheritance usually took place after the father had died. And in this case, the rebel son demands his rights in advance, in effect, as commentators make clear on this passage, indicating that the son is treating the father as if the father has already died. The second R is for ruin. Because that's the state in which the lad finishes up. Reduced to caring for pigs, unclean animals for Jews, remember. And so a real piece of ritual pollution and come down in every sense of the word. This boy finds out, as so many have since, that there's a high price to be paid for low living. It might be that the father's readiness to send the son off with money was actually a well-intentioned move to try and ensure that he didn't finish up like he did. Many a parent has tried to provide the wherewithal to prevent hard knocks in their children only to find that they've provided the means to buy the drugs or whatever that they never intended. But the ruin is the lad's. And it's when he hits rock bottom that he, like so many, actually allows himself to think seriously and honestly about his situation, possibly for the first time. The third R is reflection. He came to his senses. Or better, he came to himself Meaning that he permitted himself to be actually honest about his situation, to ditch this fantasy view of his life. 
and the result was his decision to go home. Humbly, and try and take up a position as a servant in his father's household, whether this came to him overnight, a flash from heaven, or whether he was wrestling with this decision for months, which is my preferred interpretation. Well, we don't know, but there came a time when he set off to return to his father and his family. And he, and this is the fourth or fourth and fifth R, repented and returned. He blurts out his prepared speech. He's sorry. He was stupid. He doesn't expect forgiveness. He'll work in the fields. He'll do whatever. He hopes for another chance. And this rebel child doesn't even finish his prepared repentance speech before the father enfolds him, and this could be the sixth R, receives him back. His father's forgiveness and compassion and generosity go beyond what the son expected, and he's overwhelmed by love. Now, I I want to apply this well-known and loved story without any attempt or pretense at innovation to certain scenarios. So expect God to speak speak to you through the scenarios and ensure that you're just listening with your spiritual ears in order to respond to God if God speaks to you this morning in a particular way. First, this story has a word to say to parents, whether they're young parents or old parents. It says something like, no matter how much you love your children, no matter how good a parent you strive to be, you can't prevent the clear possibility that one day, to put it crudely, they'll kick you in the teeth and they'll rebel. The story also suggests that parents will worry, they'll be upset, they'll be heartbroken, they'll be angry and sometimes embittered and estranged. But they will do well, however costly it might be, if they never make it impossible for prodigals to return. Always keeping the door slightly ajar, as it were. It's not a case of duty or right, but for Christian parents, a thing of grace. Because one of the majestic things about this story, which is not often dwelt upon, is that even in the rock-bottomness of the son's rebellion and ruin, he has no doubt whatsoever, even though he might doubt the basis on which that he can return home. To Christian parents who lament that their children's lostness is in a spiritual direction, oh, the faith means so much to you if only our Billy or Jennifer or whoever really understood that. And that they don't or will not or seem determined not to share your faith. This story also suggests that prodigals do sometimes return home. And sometimes after many years of being very far away. And so whatever else goes on, there's 
prayer and hope continuing because in the story, the only way a father sees a son returning from so far away is if he's permanently tuned to the prospect of looking and longing and hoping. Second, I wonder whether or not you identified with any of the R's yourself. For in religious terms, we are all, aren't we, however old we might be in human terms, children of a parent God. And it's obvious that Luke is telling us the story in such a way that the father in the story is the God and father of Jesus Christ. The Lord, the God of the Old Testament. And if so, so where does that put us in the story? Remember what I said to you a few weeks ago, that one of the realities of parables is that as you read them, you're meant to say, now where do I stand? So how many of us are in a state of rebellion? Something in our lives is very powerfully in conflict with God the Father's will for us. We pretend sometimes that it isn't or we pretend it's not particularly important. But deep down if we came to ourselves we'd actually recognize that it is important. We're heading away from home, we're heading away from God. And each time this parable comes to us, however well we know it, it nags us and just says, is it time to stop rebelling? How many of us are in a state of ruin in spite of all our good intentions and some very good acting on our parts? How are you? I'm fine. We know, and to our discomfort, we know that God knows too, that actually our lives are in tatters. And if that's you, then hear today that God takes ruined things and makes them whole again. God is the great receiver and restorer. And today there's opportunity to turn around and head home. Have some of us come or are in a period of reflection, a, a place of personal honesty, a place where we come to ourself, not the self who is the actor, not the caricature that we think we really ought to be, or worse still, that we think others think we ought to be, but just how we really are. One preacher used to put it like this, just as you lie down and put the light out and take that breath before you relax to go to sleep at night, that's when you know who you are. Our real self. It's a painful place to be, but it's also a positive place to be because the whole of this story has several turning points and one of the key turning points for the boy is when he suddenly says in a flash moment or after months, I know what I'll do. If we follow the example of the prodigal son, the question comes to us, what are you going to do? 
And the best path is to follow his footsteps and come to a place of repentance. The fourth R. Repentance is turning your back on the way of ruin and rebellion. But not only that, it's also then turning towards God. Otherwise, you can just move turning around from one lost direction to another lost direction. One of the elements of the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is that it's often an occasion where lapsed Jews are encouraged to return to the synagogue to repent of their sinful and selfish lives and to take up again the Jewish faith that they belonged to. Because, you see, although we know, and we've heard many times, that in Greek the word to repent means metanoia, to turn about. In Hebrew, the word to repent means to come home. It's not simply a resolve to start afresh, to turn from, but to turn to, I shall return, where? I'll go to another land and see if there's no famine there. I'll go in a different direction, I'll go any direction, but back home. What will they say? No. I know what, I shall return to my father. Perhaps today is a day when God is saying to you, Isn't it time you started back home? And find what? A note on the door. No prodigals allowed. Go away. We'll set the fatted calf on you. That's a good one. Donald English used to say about this story, it's good news for everybody except the fatted calf. That's not what you find on the door. That's not what's promised. I want us to pause on that pause uh, on that point just for a moment because I think that some of us know we remain in rebellion and ruin and I think some of us know what it is to move through times of reflection upon our life in relation to God but we can't bring ourselves to start to return home because in the end of the day we don't think we've got the right or we think that we're just not quite good enough or we think that there'll be no one to receive us at the other end. American preacher Fred Craddock preached at a local church when the minister was away and he preached on the prodigal son and afterwards a man in the congregation shook his hand and one of you might do that this morning, shook his hand and said, I didn't really care for that sermon, frankly. Why, said the preacher, well, it's not so much your sermon, I just don't like the story. Why? Well, well, it's not morally responsible, is it, for giving the boy after all he did? Uh, Well, what would you have done then? Well, I think when he came home, he should have been arrested and sent away. When he tells his story, Fred Craddock says that first of all, I thought the man was making a joke that there was going to be a crack in his face and he turned it on its head. But his face told me, he said he was dead serious. He belonged to that unofficial organization that's around the whole world. It has no meetings, no AGM and no name. 
but they're called the moral police. Mandatory sentences, no parole, and executions where necessary. So what would you have given the prodigal, said the preacher to the man? About six years, said the man. I want to suggest that some of us are crippled in our spirituality because we actually believe the force of stories like that. And the result is that we find ourselves unable to return home. Our inadequacies, our failures are true and real enough, but we've made them a barrier between us and God. And in a perverse way, therefore, almost made the very sins that separated us from God the sins that prevent us from even considering we can return to God. The number of times in pastoral conversation in 38 years of ministry, I've had people come to me informally or formally and said something like, if God really knew what I was like. And I chuckle to myself and think, you think he doesn't? And yet? A girl in a previous church used to say to friends in the fellowship as it ended, will you go home with me? And she did it for protection, nothing dramatic. There needed to be no safeguarding or orders or anything, but she just reckoned that her dad would not be quite so mad at her for going to church if she arrived home with a friend from the fellowship. Now, we're not dealing with that kind of heavenly parent. But why not ask Jesus to accompany you back to his father's house? His home. You see, Jesus is the, the non-prodigal. Possibly in spiritual terms, the one non-prodigal there is. He knows us and loves us. And more than that, he knows that God his Father is ready to receive even us, even when we ourselves cannot yet fully accept or believe it. So this story comes to us, this one. Start home with Jesus. Let him take us back to God, for God is ready to receive us. And as the Jews remind themselves on Yom Kippur, there are few things quite so wonderful as a welcome and a happy homecoming. Amen. So as a response this morning, we sing, I'm accepted. It's coming up on the screen. Then there'll be a short prayer for us as we go into the week, and then we'll sing our final hymn, which I chose specially because it was one of the hymns that Helen and I had at our wedding service.